Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for the power of revelation knowledge. And we open our hearts, Lord, to your teachings. And we ask that you would do what only you can do by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm really excited about this series, Identity Rehab, and I want to continue just digging into scripture. Uh, today, we're going to focus on Philippians, Philippians chapter one, and there's so much revelation packed here. Um, are you excited about it? Is God doing something in your life with regards to your identity in Christ? One of the things I'm so aware of, and I'm so conscious of this, and the Lord spoke to me about it recently, that sometimes we use identity in Christ as a tool. You know what I'm talking about, right? So we say, hey, if you really want that job, you need to know who you are in Christ. Hey, if you really want that promotion, you need to know who you are in Christ. And it's so easy to still be humanistic in our worldview. Humanism is man-centered worship, man-centered religion. It's so easy to use identity in Christ really as a tool, as a tool to grow in faith, right? But it's not centered around the Christ, around Jesus, all right? And so the Lord gave me this message on how can we have a gospel-centered identity? How can we make sure that this new man, that we are in Christ Jesus is centered around the gospel. What do people who are gospel-centered actually look like with regards to their identity? And that's what we're going to really delve into today. And what's exciting is that Paul writes the book of Philippians. He writes it from prison. It's one of the prison epistles. So he's in Rome. It's about AD 61. And he's writing to the church at Philippi, which he had planted about 10 years earlier in about AD 51. So he knew these people personally. Okay. He knew a lot of them personally. Um, and it's one of his most tender epistles. All right. You see a lot of love. You see a lot of warmth, a lot of affection just oozing through. And uh, so we're going to delve into it. And let's see what we what's what we get. So if you look at Philippians chapter one, I'm going to read from verses 20 to 21. All right. As as one of my key scriptures, uh, it says here, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Now, that's someone who was gospel centered right? Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Christ is everywhere. Guys, if I live, at least I've, I've got Christ and I'm living through him, right? Or his life through me, right? And then if I die, I will be with Christ, right? So Christ was his everything. And his goal is that in everything he does, Christ would be exalted in his body, right? That's basically saying everything I say, Christ will be exalted. Everything I do, Christ will be exalted. Wherever I go, Christ will be exalted, right? And that's the mark of being gospel-centered. That's what I mean about being gospel-centered. And they're just three facets of a gospel-centric identity that I'm going to show you uh, today. And I think it's so powerful. But first, we need to define what do we mean by the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the good news. That's literally what it means. In fact, it was only in the second century where people started to refer to gospels as the books that were written, all right? The gospel according to Mark, gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Luke, gospel according to John. And sometimes we become religious about some of these terms. But when we talk gospel, we're just talking good news. I still remember when we were growing up, 
Um, my, we're four boys in our family. I'm number two. All right. And my brother, James, who comes after me is eight years younger than me. And I still remember my dad coming to us, to David and myself, uh, and saying, Hey guys, I've got some good news. And we had to guess what the good news was. And we would say, um, new bikes. And you're like, no, new this, new that. No. And at a certain point he says, mom is having a baby in six months time. Right. And uh, I won't go into the detail in terms of how we reacted, whether it was an anticlimax or not. I'm really glad that I've got young brothers and so on. But obviously at the time I was kind of like, oh, I thought it would be bikes or something. Right. But the point I'm making is that that was good news and we were anticipating it. Right. But what I find interesting is that when the gospel was being preached, especially in the first century, right, that's exactly what they'll be doing. Guys, have you heard the good news? Well, what's the good news? You know, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And guys, you know what? We're not going to have to die for our sins anymore, right? We're not under God's wrath. We don't have to face God's wrath anymore. Because if we believe in him, um, we've got this free gift of eternal life and also of the Holy Spirit. Oh, wow, that's good news. Imagine if we shared the gospel that way, if we spoke of the good news that way, so natural, and we spoke of it as good news, not bad news, all right? So what's the mark of a gospel-centered community or gospel-centered identity? What does it actually look like? What does it actually look like? Um, One of the things I want to highlight is that the Christian faith is different to all other religions. The Christian faith is different to all other religions. If you look at all other religions, you'll notice that they focus on giving advice concerning how to get to God, right? They focus on giving advice concerning how to get to God. But it's only in Christianity where God himself comes and basically says, guys, you can't do it on your own, so I'm going to do it for you. And he comes and he dies for us. It's very unique right? It's life-giving. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And it's important that we know the essence of the gospel and we can articulate it. So let's unpack it. And I'm basing this this message on Philippians, uh, and we're going to be reading from uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, all right? The first facet of a gospel-centered identity is partnership in the gospel. So if someone says, my identity is centered around the gospel, the first question I'm going to ask them is, are you in partnership with someone else or other people with regards to the gospel? It's never in isolation. We're not proclaiming Christ in isolation. This is so important. You see, when we're talking about identity, there's the individual characteristics of someone that distinguish them from other people. That's the individual dimension of identity. But there's also the social dimension of identity. What group are you a part of? Who do you identify with? All right. So that's really the question of fellowship. And we're going to go into that. So Philippians chapter one, verses four to five, um, Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, Isn't it wonderful? These people he was involved with in this wonderful church plant, uh, he prayed for them. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, Paul was rejoicing in the fact that these guys had stuck with him, right? And he talks about your partnership in the gospel. He doesn't just say the fact that I preached to you guys and you passively listened to me. 
right? He talks about the partnership in the gospel. My question is, who are you in partnership with when it comes to the gospel? Not when it comes to behavior modification, not when it comes to motivational talks, not when it comes to other things. I'm talking about the gospel, the sharing of the good news. Are you in partnership with a group of people, with other people with regards to that? That's a gospel-centered identity. And it's interesting because that word partnership is an interesting one. It means to participate in something or to contribute to something. So it's not really accurate when we say, oh, I'm going to go in fellowship with those people. And we're just talking about socializing. <coughs> it's not really accurate. All right. Because partnership is not just about socializing. By the way, that word that is used in the, in the Greek, it's the word koinonia, which literally is translated fellowship very often. But fellowship is not the same as a social. When we talk about a fellowship, or we're talking about a partnership where you're actively participating and contributing. So when you say uh, we serve together in the hospitality team, that's a partnership in the gospel. Does that make sense? You're contributing, you're participating with each other. It's an active process. It's not just talking. It doesn't just involve talking to each other. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I think this is amazing. They didn't bail out just because Paul was now in prison, right? That's what he's rejoicing about. Are you contributing? Are you helping? Are you participating? It speaks of spiritual fellowship. One of the sad things about the gospel today, what we call the gospel today, is that very often people are not contributing, okay? They're just receiving, you know? They're just warming the pews in a church, and that's not gospel-centered identity, all right? That's a consumerist mentality, right? And we see this happening a lot. You know, I'm going to church so I can be blessed. I'm going to that church meeting so I can be blessed. That's the mentality. And then a lot of preachers have a bless you mindset, you know? Hey, are you blessed? Are you blessed? Are you blessed? I'm here to bless you and you're here to receive the blessing, right? But what's crucial for us when it comes to uh, being gospel-centric, is that we are also contributing. We are producers, not just consumers. And that's very important. Okay. So when your identity is gospel-centered, it means that you participate in the work of the gospel. You're an active participant. And fellowship in the true sense is not so much just hanging out with each other. It's what you do when you're contributing and you're participating. Very, very important. And... Um, <clears throat> We see that partnership can happen at many levels. Partnership can happen at many levels, all right? So you'll find, for example, if you unpack the concept of proclaiming Christ, you can proclaim Christ from the pulpit, all right, to a public gathering. You can proclaim Christ in a small group setting. You're still preparing for that, but it's a small group of people. You can also proclaim Christ one-on-one, -on -one, okay? Usually don't prepare for that, but it's wherever you go in the workplace and so on. So we see that partnership is taking place at multiple levels, and that's quite crucial. And we'll unpack that a little bit further, all right? If you look at Philippians 1, if, let's go to verse 6 to 7 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. Isn't that wonderful? That was the nature of the par partnership. He had them in his heart, okay? And whether I am in chains 
or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, this is so powerful, right? Do you remember how Jesus says, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And he says that in the context of, hey, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So one of the things we are guaranteed is that when we are on mission, proclaiming the gospel, having gospel-centered identities, we know that he never leaves us. He never forsakes us because we're tracking with him because that's his mission, isn't it? So that's very important in the context of the gospel. We can claim that as a promise. And then I find it interesting how Paul the Apostle says, you know what, you guys have been with me, whether I am confirming the gospel or defending the gospel. And I find it amazing because that word defending the gospel, it's the word apologia, right? And that's where we get apologetics from, right? Where we're defending the gospel, right? This is specifically a speech that is made in defense of something. And it's usually a term used in the court of law. So when he's talking about the gospel, what you do with the gospel is, yes, you proclaim it, but you also defend the gospel. There's a place for defending the gospel, right? Elsewhere in scripture, it tells us to explain the hope that is in us. Every believer needs to be able to do that. We need to be able to explain the hope that is in us. And I believe that we need to go deep into the word, deep into Bible study so that we can explain to people. You know, people often ask, well, if God is there, if this is really good news, then why is there so much suffering in the world? You know, why did this happen to this person? Why did this happen to that person? We need to be able to defend the gospel. Oh, did Jesus really rise from the dead? How do you know that to be true? Right. This is not something just for intellectuals out there. There's a place for apologetics. Right. Defending the gospel in biblical Christianity. And when you have a gospel centric identity, you're able to do that. And we're going to do uh, position papers on these things. We're going to teach lessons on these things so that we're all fully equipped to be able to defend the gospel. Then he also talks about confirming the gospel. How do you confirm the gospel? Well, you confirm the gospel through your lifestyle. You know, when Jesus says, hey, love one another, and then they will know that you are my disciples. You're confirming the gospel by your lifestyle. They'll know that oh, this is real. You know, do you remember when Peter was preaching and others, right? The other apostles, they said, wait a minute, these guys, how come they're doing all these amazing things, but they're not learned men. They're not educated men and says that, but they realized that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. That's an example of confirming the gospel. The gospel is also confirmed, not just through our lifestyle, but the gospel is also confirmed through signs and wonders. Bible says that, you know, he will confirm through signs and wonders the preaching of the gospel. So that's God's part in confirming the gospel. And by the way, he's confirming, again, not any other fancy doctrine that we have. He confirms the gospel. So we need to be preaching the gospel. We need to be proclaiming the gospel. We need to be proclaiming that raw, hardcore good news. And I think that's so powerful when we, when we do so. All right. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Some translations say, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Right? So we are called to defend the gospel. We are called to confirm the gospel. That word for confirming the gospel is the word to ratify. To ratify, it's to establish or to sustain. 
That's what it's talking about, right? And we do that through our lifestyle. We also do that through signs and wonders. Those are two aspects of confirming the gospel that I just want to, uh, to highlight, right? In Philippians chapter 1, verses uh, 27b through to 28, it says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I find this so powerful because it's highlighting that this is a lifestyle you live, whether Paul was absent or Paul was present, right? So we're not operating as man pleasers, you know? It's not like, oh, the pastor's around, let's all behave ourselves, right? This is something we are doing, whether someone is watching us or not. We are self-motivated. There's a passion in us because Christ has changed our lives. If, if you have a gospel-centered identity, this will be true of you. Okay, then it says, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God, right? So our partnership in unity revolves around the faith of the gospel. That's what the scripture shows us, right? It revolves around the faith of the gospel. Our partnership in unity happens whether our leaders are present or not. That's why it's so fulfilling as a leader when I see things happening and people doing all sorts of things, not because they've been told. This is so important. I want to encourage you, you know, whatever we honor, right, in this household of faith, whatever is honored here, you'll find other people from the outside honoring it. But if we dishonor what's going on here, right, if we become familiar with it, then our prayers are a waste of time when we say, Lord, take this message and make it global because we haven't given it reverence ourselves. How do we do that? How do we honor what's here? Well, I want to encourage you, when you hear the word being preached, take it home afterwards, you know, download the messages, the PDFs, pray them into your life, what we call meditative prayer, where you are reading the word, studying it for yourself, but you're praying it over your own life. Extremely powerful, extremely powerful. Remember, Jesus could not do or did not do many miracles in Nazareth, all right? It says because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief. Unbelief will squash the power of the word in our lives because our hearts aren't open to what God is trying to do. That's what it does. And let's not take these things for granted. And it's interesting because just before it says that, it's, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, right? So we want to make sure that we don't become familiar. Familiarity results in unbelief. Familiarity results in unbelief. And I believe that we need to be those who are in partnership with the gospel, whether your leaders are watching you or not, okay? Our partnership in unity will help us to overcome persecution. That's what we also see in this scripture. It says, um, strive together in unity as one faith for the gospel without being frightened in any way of those who oppose you, right? If we're in partnership in this gospel, right? We will be so strong. We won't be afraid of those who oppose us. And it's very subtle, the type of opposition we can face. And then we see that our partnership in unity is a sign of our salvation. And that's why it says here, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. When they see us soldiering on, doing what God has called us to do, it's amazing. They realize that, man, these guys, it's for real. You know, it's not about money. It's not about having big crowds. You know, right now during the lockdown, you might be feeling like, wait a minute, they're saying only essential services 
will carry on. But isn't meeting together as a church an essential service? All right, you can, you can think that. But there's so many ways we can still meet together, right, as the body of Christ. I've been so blessed with certain phone calls I've received, you know, from friends overseas and times of prayers and prayer and worship that we've had together. I want to encourage you, keep doing that. Do what you can because uh, fellowship, partnership in the gospel is essential. It's an essential service. We don't have to do it in a big crowd, but we can do it using technology and in many other ways. All right. Um, so true partnership in the gospel means that we we embrace different dimensions of kingdom relationships. I want to show you something. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to Philippians 2, verses 22 to 25. He says, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. All right? So that's one type of relationship. And I want to challenge you, if you're truly in partnership in the gospel and you've got this gospel identity, it's important that we have father-son relationships. That's one relationship we see here. It says, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. All right. Uh, in verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So sons are sent because they represent fathers really well, right? So they're sent. In fact, that's uh, sonship, spiritual sonship. It's actually one of the primary ways of receiving impartation and receiving mantles, okay? That's just one of the kingdom ways that God works through fathers and sons. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, and then look at the description in terms of Epaphroditus. It says, my brother. So that's another relationship, the relationship of brother, all right? A, a, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So by inference, when you're someone's brother, it speaks of closeness. So we have father-son relationships, but we also have brother-brother or sister-sister relationships or brother-sister relationships, right? And then it's, he's, he describes Epaphroditus in another way. He says, my co-worker. So we have co-workers and then fellow soldier. And then he says, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs? So we see here five relationships highlighted here, five key types of relationships that are highlighted here. And there's some people you might be relating to as a brother, but you need to start relating to them in this partnership with the gospel as a fellow soldier. Maybe you need to be saying, look, let's go and do this outreach together. Maybe you should be saying, let's do some spiritual warfare together. We are soldiers in the army of God together. You see, a lot of our relationships are hindered because they're just one dimensional. You know, maybe you just see that individual as a co-worker, but God is saying this needs to shift from just being a co-worker to being a brother. This needs to shift from just being a co-worker to actually a father-son relationship. You see how God works uh, when we're in these partnerships. Ask yourself in the people that you are relating to, how can God upgrade the relationship so that you have the full benefits of it? And <clears throat> what I find interesting is as, as this thing is unpacked, he talks about the concept of being a partner with him in grace, being a partner with him in grace. And I think that's so important because what happens is that when you 
partner with someone in the gospel, you partake of their grace. What do we mean by grace? That divine enablement to do what God has called them to do. As you are aligned in the same vision, in unity, you are partnering with that person's grace. So right now, for example, in this ministry that we, that, that we are leading, that we are forging ahead with, there are certain angels, right, angelic resources that uh, God has blessed us with for this assignment. God has given me certain angels to work with me in terms of what he's called me to do. And as we align with this particular vision and we partner with it, okay, those angels also work with you because we are aligned. It's the same mission. For any mission that God gives you, any assignment that he gives you, he also provides for it. He also provides for it. There's spiritual resources. And later on in the series, I'm going to be talking about those things. There's a place in the spirit. The Bible says we are seated in heavenly places, right? In Christ Jesus. And where we are seated based on our level of grace, right? There are resources, there's divine supply. And I want to share with you this morning that as we work together, we are partakers of each other's grace. And this is not just top down, by the way, okay? As we partner with each other, brothers, co-workers, we partner with the grace that's on each other's lives. Isn't that powerful? I think it's so phenomenal. And it's sad that often a lot of believers work in isolation and they never experience the benefit of being partakers of, um, of grace with each other. Okay, so he says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me. Okay, he hasn't served me as a co-worker. He has served me as a son with his father in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Sons are sent. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. That's also quite powerful. You know, he was trusted as a messenger, right? That's a powerful role that one can play. Whom you sent to take care of my needs. So meditate on this scripture and see what the Lord is saying. I think there's something so, so powerful um, in, this particular, in, the, in this particular scripture. All right. Let's be careful about the spirit of familiarity because it breeds unbelief and it short circuits the move of God. So, so important. Okay. Now let's have a look at the second dimension. So in this first dimension, we've spoken quite a bit about partnership and the different relationships. The second dimension is an interesting one. The first one was the question of fellowship. The second one is the question of life change that happens. If you say that you're in a gospel-centered community and you have a gospel-centered identity, something must change in your lifestyle, right? And this is what we call the fruit of righteousness. The Bible talks about the fruit of righteousness. I'm now in right standing with God, all right, through redemption, right? And that means there's life change as a result of this. So let's carry on in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, it says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, okay? So that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from where? That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the fruit of righteousness, the outworking of righteousness, is not a righteousness from our own works. It's not a righteousness from our own self-effort. Okay, It's the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things about a fruit tree, you know, when an apple grows, you don't see it striving. You don't see this apple like, I'm just pushing, I've become an apple. I popped out. Okay, it's almost effortless as long as that apple, right, is joined, is one with the rest of the apple tree. And that's why Jesus says, abide in me, remain in the vine. And as long as we remain in Christ Jesus, drawing from him as our source, as our nourisher, as our sustainer, the fruit of righteousness will just come forth. It will come forth, all right? And I think this is so powerful. So the person who has a gospel-centered identity exhibits the fruit of righteousness, right? Exhibits the fruit of righteousness. Now, this includes an emotional longing, right? I find it interesting when you look at this word. He says, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, right? That's a fruit of righteousness, Right? And it's interesting because that word affection is not talking about agape type of love. You know, it's actually talking about emotional connection, right? It's talking about the seat of the emotions. There was something in how he related to this church in Philippi that he longed for them with that type of affection. And you know, some of you have been battered in life, you've been bruised, and so you've become hardened. There are things that harden us. You can be hardened in marriage. You can be hardened in ministry when you don't feel appreciated. But I'm telling you right now, a fruit of right standing with God through Christ Jesus is we are released in our emotions. We can feel again. We can love again. We're affectionate. We are tender toward people. When you see someone being hardened and just saying, I don't need anyone. I don't feel anything, Paul then there's something wrong. It means that they're not walking in their full gospel identity. I find it interesting that Paul was quite a firm guy, quite tough at times and so on, but yet he was so in touch with his emotions. If you're not in touch with your emotions today, if you are numb as a person, then it means that you're not fully plugging into Christ, who's the vine, okay? and drawing from him to experience that fruit of righteousness, okay? So that is one of them. That is one aspect of them, right? It's talking about the inward parts, the seat of your emotions. It talks about the affection of Christ. So this is not a soulish affection. This is not just, oh, I feel good, you know? This is the affection of Christ. So when Christ lives in you by his spirit, right, the hope of glory, guess what? You begin to have a tenderness towards people, with the tenderness of Christ, okay? He lives through you. The Bible talks about how his body fills everything, fills all in all, and we are his body, right? And so when he expresses himself through us, one of the things he expresses through us is his affection. I think it's so powerful that it's not my affections, it's the affection of Christ. I think that's, uh, that's a phenomenal statement there, right? So God can give you a consciousness of Christ's affection toward those you would ordinarily not have feelings for. He gives you those feelings. He gives you that compassion, okay? And um, so watch out for hardening. Watch out for hardening, all right? You see, you cannot have 
emotional intimacy with another human being without some degree of vulnerability. And for some of us, it's just taking that first step of saying, you know what, it's okay to be weak. It's okay to make myself vulnerable. Yes, it's risky because I've been hurt before, but I'm choosing to do it with the affection of Christ. You know that when, when Jesus was tender toward us, it was while we were yet unbelievers. That's what the Bible tells us. Bible tells us that Christ died for us in our sin, right? Christ died for us. He loved us while we were yet sinners. The nature of his love for you and I is it's not based on our works. It's not based on what we've done. It's based on his lavish riches in glory. Okay, and that's how he has loved us. And so when he says, carry my love in you, we ought, we ought to love each other with his love. That's a gospel-centered identity. In Philippians 1 verse 27, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So when you're talking about fruits of righteousness, we're talking about our conduct. And there's a conduct, there's a lifestyle that goes hand in hand with the gospel of Christ. It involves quite a number of things. Okay. The third dimension I want to highlight today is the dimension of mission. The dimension of mission. So the first dimension that we looked at was very powerful, right? Uh, speaking of the gospel. The second was also extremely powerful. We've spoken about partnership in the gospel, right? We've also spoken about this tenderness, this love, this fruit of righteousness in terms of how we walk, our lifestyle change. And the third dimension I want to look at is our mission, right? It's about advancement of the gospel. So when someone has a gospel-centered identity, they're in partnership with the gospel, all right? They've got some kind of uh, group they're fellowshipping with. They're not operating in isolation, okay? Genuine relationships, okay? They also have life change or lifestyle change. And then thirdly, they're in mission. They're in mission. They're in mission. They're advancing the gospel. When you look at the life of Paul, he measures his progress, his success, his failures, his uh, enemies by assessing how it's impacting the gospel. You know, so he could be in prison, he could be in jail, but it's like, you know what, guys, you know what, the gospel is being advanced. So my being jail in jail is actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. He assessed everything that way. When your identity is not centered around the gospel, you will find yourself measuring success, failure, happiness, sadness. It's all determined by things that are outside of the gospel, right? But he focused on, is the gospel being advanced? If it's being advanced, then that's really great. He interpreted circumstances in light of gospel advancement, in light of gospel advancement. I want to ask you, are you the kind of person who's so excited and so happy because your business is growing, but you're indifferent whether people are being saved or not? You see, that means your life is not gospel centered. Right. Are you the kind of person who's all excited because your family is doing really well? Right. But your church is not growing and people aren't being saved. OK, but you're indifferent. When it comes to that, you see, when you're gospel centered, everything in your life is measured, right? Um, and determined, your happiness is determined based on advancement of the gospel, right? So uh, let's have a look at this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result... It has become clear throughout 
the whole palace guard, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Isn't this powerful? Okay, so it is clear that fear is one of the things that causes us to shrink back from proclaiming the gospel. It's very clear. So my question is, are you happy that your business is growing even if your church is not? If you are, then it means you're not gospel-centered. Are you happy that your children are healthy even if you're not seeing miracles that confirm the gospel, right? That, again, means that your life is not gospel-centered. Do you see your hardships and challenges as opportunities for the gospel to be advanced? That's someone who's gospel-centered. You see, when your identity is centered around the gospel, then you assess your life based on its advancement, okay? When you meet new people, when you make new friends, when you grow your business, how central is the gospel and the gospel's advancement in your thinking? To what extent are you thinking gospel, gospel, gospel? right? Are you still excited when you hear that someone got saved? Or have you become a professional Christian who's indifferent about that? I still remember in my varsity days, there was a particular uh, girl and I thought, okay, she's a believer and so on. And she was in our circle of friends, my circle of friends at the time. And I remember coming to that group and I said to her, hey, it's so exciting. I spoke to so-and-so, I witnessed to them. And guess what? Yeah, they've given their lives to the Lord. And I remember she looked at me with this blank face, this blank look. And she said, no, it's just interesting, Paul, the things you get excited about. Okay. And that's a classic example of someone who wasn't gospel centered in their thinking. All right. Because the fact that someone was saved didn't seem to do anything to her. And it's interesting because we can become these professional Christians, right, where we are just used to, let me go to church so I hear an encouraging word for my personal breakthrough. Let me go so I get tips on how I can grow my business, how I can do this and this and that for myself. But we're not gospel-centered. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, the Bible says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. There we go again, defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Now, let me just press pause here. It's possible to preach the gospel out of selfish ambition. It's possible. You can actually be the kind of person who was really successful out there in the, in the business world. You get saved and now you're just ruthless for the kingdom of God. And you're doing all sorts of things. But when you explore deeper, you see that the motivation is you just want to be successful, right? There are a lot of people who've become Christians, but they're still searching for significance. And Jesus is looking and saying, what else is more significant than bearing my name? But you're still looking for significance. You still want to be a success in life. You see, you can be driven by selfish ambition when it comes to preaching the gospel. But... Paul was so passionate about the gospel and its advance. Look what he says. He says, but what does it matter? What does it matter? This is verse 18. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, so he was innovative, in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 
Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. You know, there are many people out there, they might be preaching the gospel just like I am right now, but their motives might not be pure, right? They might have different agendas, but somehow there's that excitement where we're saying, you know what? There are people out there who are making Jesus famous in the nations. Let's just rejoice because of that. Yes, we can do other messages where we talk about motives and so on. But for now, let's be so passionate, so gospel-centered that the word is getting out there and people are getting saved. That's the fact, right? Let's be so passionate about it and let's pick our battles, right? Let's pick our battles. I think that's exciting, right? It's, it's, it's so sad because in the church today, we can exalt our own methodologies above gospel advancement. Paul could have written a whole book a whole lot of letters just on how the gospel is preached and how his way was better and so on. But he didn't. His focus was, is the gospel being advanced or not? Okay. So when we're gospel centered, we keep the main thing, the main thing. One of the sad things is that during this time of lockdown, a lot of people are having all sorts of arguments, you know, about eschatology and end times and this is what it means and this is what's going to happen. And we actually lose focus. You know, I love what one of my friends said, where they said, you know what, this virus, which is a virus of death, has spread so quickly all over the world in just a few weeks. I'm looking forward to, as we emerge out of this, the gospel, which is life-giving, spreading even faster. For me, that's a classic example of being Christ-centered and gospel-centered. That's what we must focus on. Don't get involved in all these arguments about, okay, what does this mean, you know? Uh, which doctrine of end times is the better one. It means this, it means that, and so on. Focus on advancing the gospel, right? Gospel advancement. The fact of the matter, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jesus said himself that the gospel will first be preached to all nations. So let's focus on that and then the end will come. That's our assignment. That's the assignment. He will come when he wants to come, but we must focus on preaching the gospel right? And uh, the dominion mandate, right? Go and teach nations to obey my teachings. That's basically what Jesus said, disciple nations. And that's what I'm going to pour myself into. Are you so consumed with the advancement of the gospel that you're willing to suffer for it? Because Paul was so centered around the gospel that he was willing to suffer for it. In Philippians 1, verse 29 to 30, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Right? That's why elsewhere he talks about being partaking or fellowshipping with his sufferings. Okay, Being a partner with Christ with his sufferings. Verse 30 says, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. And it's interesting because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 29 to 30, Okay, so it's the second chapter, but it's the same verses, right? It says, so then welcome him. He's talking about Epaphroditus. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. There's certain types of people, excuse me, we need to honor. And it says in verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Question, have you ever had to suffer for the gospel? And what would that look like in your life? Have you ever had to risk your life so that someone else hears the gospel? You see, many of us have become so passive, so uh, focused on our comfort. We've said this before, that God is more interested in your character than your comfort. You see, many of us have not been gospel-centered. We've been focused more on our comfort. We've been comfort-centered. 
So when we say, let's do this outreach to Tembisa, let's do this outreach to that community there that needs the gospel. It's like, yo, my Saturday afternoons are precious. I can't do that. Okay. And yet here, Epaphroditus was labeled as a person by Paul who should be honored. He says, honor people like this. People like what? People who risk their lives for the gospel. I believe that there's a generation that God is raising up that are willing to become uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel, that are willing to become uncomfortable so that people hear the gospel, the good news. We want to proclaim Christ in a radical way. The day and age of just sitting on our, on our pews and being comfortable in church, listening to fancy revelation, having our ears tickled, that day is over, ladies and gentlemen. It's a time and it's an hour where God is raising up a generation of people who will be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. But that's where joy comes. Throughout his epistle to the Philippians, it's joy, joy, joy. I rejoice even while I'm in prison. I rejoice because the gospel is being advanced. Have you ever had to suffer? for the gospel? That's a key question I want to ask you. And what would that look like in your life if you suffered for the gospel? Just pause and think about that because God will show you how maybe you are not aligned with his kingdom purpose because your decision making is based on what's most comfortable. Let me do what's most comfortable. Let me tell you something. The thing that you'll enjoy the most in life, you won't find it most comfortable. You won't find it most comfortable, but it will be risky. Sometimes the way you spell faith is R-I-S-K. It'll be risky, but that's where you get the most fulfillment. Some of the things I've done in my life that I've found most fulfillment in, to be honest with you, they've been the most risky things, right? But you know what? That's where my purpose lies. Are you willing to run out and do what God has called you to do? So in summary, the distinctive dimensions of gospel identity, gospel-centered identity, are to do with number one, partnership or fellowship in the gospel. Number two, life change in the gospel. And number three, mission. Number three, mission. Has your life been changed by the gospel in terms of lifestyle change? Are you on a mission and you're ruthless about it? Okay. And are you in partnership? with other believers with regards to this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you are doing. And we pray right now that you would do a special thing in us, that you would chisel off our lives, chisel out of our lives, anything that is not gospel-centered. Father, we pray that your gospel and its advancement will be such a priority in our lives, even as we read in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We ask that your grace works deeply in us and that our hearts and lives are radically changed, Lord. So that when people look at us, they'll say the gospel is central in this person's life. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And the people of God said, Amen. I encourage you to go from here and to pray through this sermon in your own time during the course of this week. To pray together with other believers concerning being gospel-centric. This is where the blessing is. This is where the favor is. This is where we experience Jesus manifest in our lives. This is where the miracles are. I encourage you to walk in this dimension. From next week onwards, I'll be looking at how to decouple ourselves from pseudo-identities. There's pseudo-identities out there, and we will be exploring how to uh, separate ourselves 
from those pseudo identities. Stay with us as we do this and keep spreading the good news. God bless you. Thank you.